Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physiotherapist and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Jazz Randawa, the lead performance therapist at Altus. I was excited to get Jazz on as a guest as I'm personally and currently completing the Altus online performance therapy course. With no commercial ties to them, I will gladly say their educational courses and their 360 resource is top-notch, and I'm genuinely enjoying and benefiting professionally from the performance therapy course. So if you're looking for some high-quality education, especially in terms of how you philosophically approach performance, then absolutely you should check them out. With all of that in mind, today's conversation dives deep into the Altus performance therapy approach. So without further ado, here is the conversation between myself and Dr. Jazz Randawa. Jazz, welcome to the show, mate. It's a pleasure to have you on for a chat. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you uh, reaching out and uh, us being able to sit down and do this together. No, of course. And just to kick us off, could you provide a little bit of context for any of the listeners if they maybe haven't come across you just yet? And uh, I guess just outline your background and your your route to the current day at Altis. Yeah, for sure. That's a uh... Man, we might have to sit down and grab a cup of coffee. This might be a long chat. Now, I'll try to make this as uh, succinct as I possibly can. Uh, my current role is the lead performance therapist at Altus uh, here in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, my route to get to this point was uh, pretty interesting. Uh, I originally was um, a basketball player, uh, played uh, in, at the college level in Canada. Uh, and I thought that that was going to be my route in life. And then as many athletes kind of have, you get to a certain level and you start to realize that may not be the best choice. And so I kind of hunkered down uh, with school. Um, but up at that point, I was uh, getting to the point I really enjoyed the training aspect of, of basketball. And so I actually started taking on a few of my own um, clients who were just my buddies. Uh, and I really got into strength and conditioning. I thought, no, this might be something I want to do. Uh, and so really my background started as a strength and conditioning coach. Um, and I was fortunate enough to work with, uh, in Canada, you work with hockey players. And so I worked with a lot of great um, hockey players. And the one thing I started to notice was that, you know, I thought that we would have this great off season, uh, as far as, you know, stuff on paper and, and all the testing. And remember this is like decades ago, right? So, um, I, I, at that point in time, I was still thinking that if we can improve your, you know, your bench press, I'm doing a great job as a coach and all your performance games were because of me. But, uh, there was one thing that, you know, they would leave and they'd all be healthy and they would have great, um, a great season, but they would come back with some type of either a niggle or uh, sometimes actually injury. And, you know, we would try to work with uh, physios or chiropractors and it just, it really was them doing some old school stuff, like just that old school rehab um, and being like a young coach at the time, I just thought it was uh, for all intents and purposes, stupid, right? And that just shows you how, you know, immature I really was. But um, I decided that, you know, I think I can just do a better job at this. I, I think that there is a way just using strength and conditioning to get people better. Uh, and I was given a chance, like one of my best friends tore his ACL. Um, we did our, his rehab together. And so um, I think that whole experience really made me think about, you know what, I, I think I want to do something where I can put my hands on people. Uh, at that point, I was really just slated to go to medicine, um, uh, to be orthopedic surgeon really is what I wanted to do. Uh, but after shadowing a few docs, I just realized that it's a great profession, don't get me wrong. Um, but I needed a little bit more of a an environment where I'm constantly working with people. I wanted to be a part of a team. Uh, with an orthopedic surgeon, you know, you kind of come in, you do initial consult, maybe go for the surgery and then a post consult. And you may never see these people again. Uh, but for me, again, just kind of always being in a team environment, I, I wanted to be a part of people's lives. 
And so I decided that, okay, what's well, the next doctorate I can get where I can actually do that. And that was, you know, chiropractic school. So then I went through chiropractic school. Um, probably within the first week I realized is, this is just my story, right? Um, probably the biggest mistake I ever made. Uh, I thought that going into school at that time, it'd be, all right, cool. We're going to learn all these great, you know, um, great things. And it's all going to be kind of movement based. And, you know, they're going to, I mean, at the time I was really, you know, uh, into the FMS and, and Gray Cook. I'm like, oh, they're going to expand my knowledge on this area. And you, know, you come to find out that they actually didn't even understand what the FMS was. And so it was, uh, it was kind of a shock. And so I, I spent pretty much all of my time uh, traveling uh, the U.S., um, throughout Canada, just trying to learn from coaches, trying to learn from clinicians of what they actually did. Uh, and so I got through school. Um, luckily, uh, as soon as I graduated, actually, uh, because of my relationship with one of my mentors, uh, Charlie Weingroff, I was able to get a job with Canada Basketball uh, pretty much after I graduated uh, and then worked there for a while. And then very, very fortunate, uh, Stu reached out one day and kind of asked if I would be interested in, in coming down to Altus. Uh, and obviously, that's an opportunity you don't turn down. Like you have you know, Stu McMillan, uh, Kevin Tyler, you have Dan Paff, and obviously Jerry Ramajita was there as well, right? So um, as a as someone who, who saw this as another opportunity to, to learn from the best, so you just can't turn that down. And so that's where I've been since 2016, and so here we are now chatting. Sorry for that very long-winded kind of background. It's always really interesting to hear you know, everyone's got a different route to where they get to, so it's always really interesting to get that kind of uh, context understood to know like where you've been to understanding uh, why and where you are now. Um, yeah. Something that I kind of just thought of while you were speaking, just, you know, very simply out of curiosity is, you know, you're a chiropractor and I'm a physio or PT. So we've both got kind of context and an ability to go hands-on with uh, patients and athletes. What was it that kind of steered you towards chiropractic over, say, PT or osteopathy? Was there certain things within chiropractic that... Um, really suited you or that you really believed in uh yeah no actually it, the truth be told uh, in canada physio is a uh, master's degree um, and then chiropractor was the only doctorate degree and i knew that if i was going to go through a program and wanted to come out having a doctorate degree uh, and so that's the reason why i chose uh, chiropractic uh, in canada um, osteopathy is actually not a field that is recognized um, if you're if you graduated from the U.S. Um, as a DO, uh, when you, you could come back over to Canada, but you would join the College of uh, Surgeons and, Phys and Physicians. So yeah, there is no College of Osteopathy in Canada. So really, you're, you're, li you're limited in your scope of where you can kind of go. So that, that's just yeah, the honest reason why I went through, um, through chiropractic school. Um, I, I don't think that there is a... Uh, I guess a, a dichotomy in the field. I, I really think that all of us are aligned, um, especially in Canada. Obviously, chiropractic is a little bit more um, medically focused, I'd say. And so, the you know, if for those who are listening, thinking of going one way or the other, my story is that that's the reason why I went that one way. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say though that you know, physio is a great option as well uh, in, in retrospect, for sure. Because I think once you're once you're practicing, if you're open-minded and you read broadly, the kind of uh, the boundaries are blurred, aren't they, between any of those kind of special, uh, any of those uh, yeah. disciplines? I think they all kind of evens out a little bit if you shop around for how you treat people and how you think yeah. about problems. Absolutely. I mean, I, I've always said this, and I, you know, again, not to 
kind of rag on schooling in general, but I've always had a problem with institutionalized education. And regardless of where you come from, whether it's PT, a chiro, maybe osteopathy, you're, you're going to have that because their job is to, A, make sure you're passing your board exams, and B, make sure you don't hurt somebody. And that's what I think you know, school does for you. It teaches you what not to do. We're all really good at picking up red flags. What school doesn't necessarily do is tell you the best way to treat someone. And that's because you, you need to just start to develop context, um, especially when you're working with athletes in general, not even necessarily elite athletes, but you know, having an understanding of their demands is so different uh, across sports. So yes, ultimately, you know, you're, you're treating one human body, but the demands that are placed on there and because of the complexity um, of the human body, it, it serves us well to develop some context. And unfortunately, I just don't think school does that. And that, to me, really comes with experience. So, yeah. And how does your current role look at Altus at the moment? What are your, I guess your, people would know that you're therapeutic in nature, but what does your role look like and how do you fit into their team? Right. So with with the performance therapist, again, the first thing we, we really should just mention is kind of our, our philosophy and methodology. Um, we really believe in the idea of the performance trinity. So you have three individuals, um, the athlete, the coach, and the therapist. And these three people need to be kind of working together uh, in order for performance therapy to really work. And so you'll have constant dialogue, obviously, between the therapist and the athlete, which you know you would find in a normal clinical setting. You clearly would have dialogue between the athlete and the coach because that's who's directing training. But then you also have dialogue between the coach and, and the therapist. And the three of us are working together in unison to create the best environment, the best opportunity for an athlete to express their full capability, to fully optimize what they'll need to do on any given training day. And if they're able to do that and we're able to put, you know, days to weeks, weeks to months, months to the season together and keeping them in the best possible form they can be, we're more likely to have success with that athlete. And so my role at Altus is, yes, there's the what everyone would expect to see the medical side of it, but really I've been integrated into that, that process so deep that, you know, sometimes if you were to come and just watch a practice and you didn't know who anyone was outside of people, you know, getting worked on manually, you may not know that I was a therapist. You might think that I'm a coach. If you come over into the weight room, um, you may not see Sure. There might be tables, but you may not actually see us working on people. You might just see us coaching in the weight room. And so my role has really, you know, morphed into this, this idea um, that a therapist should be a coach and a coach should be a therapist. And so it's kind of blended together. And so the things that I do on a, on a daily basis will obviously be um, looking at how an athlete is moving and being able to make a call on what we want to do as far as an intervention goes. That intervention could or may not be manual therapy, right? It could very well be a coaching cue. It could very well be a conversation between uh, Stu and I and what we can do in addition to what we're doing in the weight room to help an athlete get to where we think they need to be at, right? Uh, it could be creating programs for these guys. Um, and obviously when it's you know an acute situation, we're going to manage that as well. And that, that's kind of my sole responsibility. So it, it is a, an interesting and very eclectic role, really kind of dip into every aspect of training that you could think about been very fortunate um, to have the trust of the coaches to do that um, but at this point it, it really is difficult for me to say 
you know, one way or the other, like what, what is your role? It's kind of like, oh, we do it all, but all of us do that. And so I think that's what makes us very unique. I'm not sure if that answers your question or it just kind of gives a bit of a, you know, an understanding as to how unique this role really is. No, I think it, it describes it perfectly. And I think it's, you know, it's definitely an ideology that I, um, I've seen a little bit of and, and buy into a lot heavily and, um, and definitely believe in one of, I guess one of the things I always wonder, and I'm, I, somebody that's maybe really not familiar with that environment might wonder is as a kind of department, how do you judge yourselves on uh, whether you're collectively being successful? Yeah. I mean, so there's, there's a lot of things we could do to do that. And ultimately it comes down to performance, right? So and that, that's why track and field is just such a great sport to work in. Um, when I was working with hockey players, it was very difficult for me to gauge, you know, if I was doing something correctly, if I was actually making a difference uh, in these guys' careers, because it's such a, the sport has a lot of variables, right? Like there's technical demands, there's tactical demands. You don't know from one game to the next if someone's performing well because of ice conditions, because of the tactics the other team is running, um, just because they're having a great game that day. Whereas with track and field, you know, the variables are pretty limited. Um, you'll have a track surface, you might have some wind conditions. Other than that, like, what the athlete displays to you really speaks volumes to what their training was like, right? And if, if they're able to have these performances that are consistently getting better, and I don't necessarily mean you're having these crazy breakthroughs in your speed time. I'm just meaning like, are you actually getting to a point where we're seeing your clusters of your times start to get better, right? So you're moving and you're trending in, in, in a direction where you're constantly improving, and I think that that for us is the most important, um, at, you know, objective measure we can have is how is the athlete performing? Um, in addition to that, now it's, you know, it's some of the stereotypical things, you know, you can look at man games lost. How many plan B workouts did an athlete have? And if we can reduce the number of plan B workouts, we're doing something, something right. Now, in other situations, it, it might be, okay, well, someone is coming back from an injury, Right. You know, the goalposts are a little bit different in that scenario. Um, it's not necessarily about how fast can we get you back. I mean, ultimately, yes, we would like to see people come back, you know, um, as quickly as they can. But it's can we bring someone back to a, a level of quality that was actually better than they were when they were bef uh, before they were injured, and that that becomes the goal. So the, the yardstick in which we kind of measure ourselves has always kind of been performance, right? Uh, it, it's almost no different than, you know, if you have a head coach of any team sport. What are they ultimately judged on, right? Sure, there's the, you know, are you able to, you know, coach your players? Are you able to mentor your players? Are you able to create um, individuals who are going to be great in society once the sport is done? Sure, but ultimately what hires you or fires you is wins and losses. So uh, performance therapy is, is very similar in, in my mind. Is Are we actually making a difference? Can we see the changes uh, and if we can't, then we're just lying to ourselves and we need to do something different. Um, we, we really do need to strive to be as, um, you know, black and white with our intent and what we're actually seeing uh, with our athletes. What was the kind of um, the origins, I guess, for how Altis kind of uh, coined performance therapy or how did, how did performance therapy, as you guys see it, how did it start and evolve? Yeah. So, and this is kind of my rendition of this story. Um, you know, I, I really think the the origins start way back in, in the middle of the 90s when, you know, Dan Paff is working 
uh, with a few sprinters. Uh, one of them who I'm sure everyone will know is Donovan Bailey. Um, obviously he won the gold medal in 96, but Dan up until that point was, um, really a, a unique coach in the sense that he never really had a budget when he was, you know, coaching in high school. Uh, and wherever he kind of went, he had to be the person who wore multiple hats. So when he was coaching in high school, there is no athletic department. He had to be that person. So, you know, the people that manage bookings are able to get equipment out, um, put equipment away, um, kind of the logistics of any type of training. Uh, he had obviously be the head coach and there was no therapy, right? So he had to figure things out on his own. And I just think that that, that environment really molded someone who had a, uh, a broader understanding of, of the body and how it actually operated. Flash forward now, it's about 96. He's able to team up with um, Dr. Mark Lindsay. And you know, I will credit, and again, this is just my opinion, uh, a very popular manual therapy technique called active release therapy. I really believe that the origins of that were kind of you know, started on that track. And obviously, you know, it is something completely different now. Um, but that type of work, those type of inputs and seeing, you know, a test and retest really started to solidify, I think, how important this stuff was um, to athletes, right? Flash forward now, so about 2010, um, up until this point, you have uh, Stu McMillan, who's, you know, going down and, and visiting um, Dan Path and spending time with him to learn from him. You have Dr. Jerry Ramajita, who's doing the same thing, trying to learn therapy, trying to learn how to see things uh, with Dan. Uh, and then obviously Kevin Tyler, who obviously knows Dan as well, right? And so these individuals all get hired on um, by the UK Athletics uh, for the lead up into the 2012 Olympic Games. Um, and so you have these individuals who have already kind of embedded this idea of performance therapy. And they get put into a situation where it's your traditional, um, you know, I guess physio-based, medical-based system where, you know, we are kind of in this little silo. Uh, people will go to the track, they'll do their thing, they'll come back from the track, they'll see us, we'll do some inputs. And it's, it's just such a, a disconnect between what's happening at training and what's happening in therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, you know, almost like a gap. And so these guys come and they show up and, you know, the only way they know how to operate is by actually doing performance therapy. Right. And so I think that sent a little bit of a ripple uh, amongst, you know, the, the team because it's something new, something different. Um, and, and during their time there, I think they really started to, to, you know, figure out, hey, we need to come together on this and actually make this a, a structured process. Because, well, one, how do you describe it to you know, the physios who are working alongside you uh, in a way that everyone is collectively essentially saying the same thing? Um, it's like the, uh, the McDonald's hypothesis, right? Like I, I know you're in Philly right now, but if I went, well, I mean, not right now because of what's going on, but, uh, in any other given time, if I went to Philly and, and went to McDonald's and asked for a Big Mac, or if you came to, you know, Phoenix and asked for a Big Mac, you know what you would get? You would get a Big Mac, right? Because there's a standard there. And so I think that they really needed to solidify what performance therapy was. Um, and at that time, you know, they came up with, um, with their own, I guess, uh, essentially definition of the term. Um, and <laughs> it's, it's very long winded, but I, I do want to read it to you guys. Um, and they describe performance therapy as basically being this ongoing, uh, collaborative process, right? Which involves the, the Trinity that we spoke about earlier. So the athlete, the coach and the therapist, and they're all working together to normalize function. And at that time it was by integrating, you know, manual therapy interventions into the sporting movements of practice. 
Um, and ultimately what they wanted to see was a result in, uh, an improve an improvement in performance in addition to the technical proficiency and mechanical, uh, efficiency of the athlete. And that's kind of what their, their long winded definition was at that time. Now, obviously performance therapy, um, the way we, we think we like to kind of define it now is slightly different. Um, it's really just a methodology that, you know, is looking at compounding all our knowledge of movement science, uh, with sport medicine. And we're combining it in an effort to better understand and then enhance the health and performance of an athlete. So a little bit more of a succinct definition. Um, but long-winded, again, answer to your question, it, it really kind of started with Dan um, kind of really initiating, say, in the mid-90s. And they get together, um, you know, just just those those brains working together kind of came up with a, a more of a methodology to, to lay out exactly what they were doing uh, when their time in the UK. And then when they came back, uh, obviously at Altus, um, it really started to kind of come together and become refined to, to what it is now with our, with the course that we just released on, on performance therapy. Yeah, which I'm very glad I've just signed up to, I have to admit. And I think, yeah. I think you made an interesting point a lot earlier about how we kind of, uh, we educate and train up in our silos. And I think, I think one of the things that made me gravitate towards Altis, um, other than lots of recommendations, was, um, you know, trained in silos. We've got lots of technology. We've got lots more uh, objective information, but we're not always doing a better job at preventing or um, managing injuries appropriately. So, you know, you can have all, you can have all the tools, but the philosophy's got to be stronger to make a big yeah. difference. And I think, like, just to, to put that in perspective a little bit, um, I have always found this interesting, and something I, I struggle with myself a little bit. But, you know, we can't, we're living in a time right now where we've probably never known more about individual injuries. And I'll use hamstring as an example. And I'm not trying to pick on hamstrings, but there's been so much research and a lot, like a lot of good research that has come out, let's say in the last decade on hamstring injuries, um, all the way from, you know, a, a better understanding of the anatomy of the hamstring group and why certain structures might get stressed a little bit more to understanding from a histological standpoint, what happens when we're going through these training evolutions. Um, you know, when we start to layer different types of work within the gym, uh, and you know, a lot of this, I'm going to credit to, um, Tony Shields and his work with eccentric overload, which has been really important. Um, we've started to gain more of an appreciation for, you know, uh, clinical, uh, entities that arise within the hamstring group, whether that's, you know, from the nervous system to, uh, you know, tendinopathies, uh, what we, what we haven't done a good job of though, to be, to be honest with you is start to understand the kinematic and kinetic, um, relationships that exist between injury, uh, and this particular group of muscles. And so it's almost like we have systematically reduced the hamstring, uh, you know, injury, um, to these smaller components. And we have a, a such an in-depth knowledge of those components but it doesn't make the whole any better, right? And so I guess what I'm saying with that is all that reductionism has done is made us really, really good at understanding the minutia of all this, but we haven't been able to put it together because if you start to actually look at from an epidemiological standpoint, are hamstring injuries going down? They're not. They're staying the same, if not potentially increasing in number. And there's a whole host of reasons. So I, I don't want to create a straw man argument for that, right? But Yes, there's a ton of reasons as to why they may be staying the same or why they may be going up. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, we still have this problem. And so, you know, with 
the performance therapy um, philosophy, it's kind of understanding a few different aspects of it. And it's obviously, you know, reductionism is, is a problem, uh, much needed at some instances for sure. But it's almost the way that's become a standard of how therapists operate. And unfortunately, our, with our understanding of complexity science, system science, um, dynamic, um, dynamical systems theory, um, ecological dynamics, like there, it, it's a far more uh, and truly even the word complex environment than we give credit for. And it's easy to get, you know, hung up and lost. And so I almost see therapists either do one way or the other. They want to live in this little bubble where reductionism is the only thing they know. And that's, to me, institutionalized education, right? We say that we have um, these uh, processes and, and ways of getting to a problem. And then when we start to speak on how you know complex everything really is and the best way for us to operate is to actually just kind of probe a system to see how it works and then to make an input and, and then just sit back and watch and see how it reacts. That doesn't give the therapist the control that they want because it almost goes against what you want to believe, right? Like I want to believe that if I do this test, it will tell me exactly what's going on. And if I know exactly what's going on, I can do this intervention and that intervention will quote unquote fix the problem. And that just doesn't work. And that, that becomes something that can weigh on you know, a therapist because we think that we're not doing a good job. And really what we need to maybe start to shift our attention to is the idea that we're managing stress, that that's what we do. Right. And we're going to manage performance by doing that and having a broader sense of what is involved with what an athlete takes in in any given day might actually help us, um, you know, ultimately increase performance. And I've said this before that performance and health at this level are synonymous with each other. You can't have one without the other. Right. They, they're, they're, they may be on a continuum for sure, but they are inherently related to one another. And so if you are trying to work on health, you ultimately need to be affecting performance as well. Because I do believe that the more efficient you're able to do what you need, uh, as far as your skill goes, the healthier you become, right? And there's lots of ways for us to kind of communicate and, and, and talk about that, for sure. I think um, I, really, I really enjoy hearing you talk about the kind of uh, complexity of systems, because I think research sometimes has a habit to just answer one simple question at a time, because of the constraints that it, it, it relies on to be able to succinctly answer and prove that it's answered one question at a time. But I think we can all relate to seeing um, two different effective practitioners treat yeah. a contextually similar injury and have, and both of them can yield really good therapeutic effects and outcomes with yeah. very different approaches, which shows that you can join the map from different locations and still get to the heart of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, we need to be careful with the research. And, and, and before I continue, I don't want anyone to think that, you know, I'm not necessarily an evidence evidence-based practitioner that's far from it i'm very much i'm so um but I, i've also understand that you know research <laughs> can be uh, a double-edged sword almost right uh, and there was a really good um podcast series between two good friends of mine miladin Jojanovic and israel harpin where they kind of discuss the issues with research now israel to me is the ultimate researcher because you know he was a high level uh, kickboxer who turned into a high level kickboxing coach who then went on to get his, you know, his PhD and a postdoc, right? So this person is pretty dialed in. He kind of understands the demands of, of the sport in which he, you know, once competed and he likes to work in. And I think that's the, the best situation to be in because you're able to do research now that's practical, right? There's a fantastic uh, researcher out here in, in Arizona named um, Dr. Rob Gray, who does a lot of work kind of in um, ecological dynamics. And he's, 
I'm not sure if he, he coined the term, but this is where I got it from. He talks about people being a pracademic, right? So not just purely academic in nature, but having practical experience in researching the things that matter to coaches, researching the things that will actually make a difference. Because a lot of research that goes on is, unfortunately, you know, if you are an academic, just publishing papers. And it's if it's not relatable to a coach, the coach is just not going to care about it. On top of that, I do think that a lot of research that comes out is behind, like it's behind what coaches have already been doing, right? So they're just researching and it's almost this post hoc analysis now. So I think the wave of the future of research goes, and this is, you know, we're, we're trying to do our part as well uh, with our living lab is being able to have a practical research environment that is the environment in which an athlete needs to perform. And that's what the living lab is. Um, we also understand that it is unrealistical from a statistical standpoint to think that, you know, us at Altus, just our minds working together are going to solve, let's say, this hamstring problem, right? It, it doesn't work that way. But we, you have to be collaborative in nature. And ultimately, you need as high as number of ends uh, for your experiment as you can. And so this is why we, we strongly believe in, you know, forming um, communities with people, whether you're a coach, whether you're a researcher, whatever it may be. But I ultimately think that for us, to help um, solve these problems in understanding them is that we have to have a collaborative effort in, in, in every way that we run kind of as a company. So sorry, that was a, a rant slash tangent that I went on there, but that's my my two cents on, on research, yeah. To kind of build on, I guess, we've we've touched a little bit upon kind of um, the state, if you like, of hamstring literature and, and problem, I guess. But how does the kind of performance therapy model maybe differ to traditional if we use the term um, models of treating say hamstring uh, muscle image uh, muscle injuries right so uh, we, we kind of uh, alluded to one of the facts in that we're not reductionist in our approach so I, I would say that the typical model really tries to reduce the problem down and starts to understand the pathology at the tissue level which again i'm not saying is wrong and it is needed um, but i also think that if that's the best you got we're in a <laughs> we're in for a long haul because there's a lot of other factors that we need to kind of identify first. And so, you know, we're very fortunate in the way that performance therapies run is that, um, if the, if the circumstance actually does present itself where we see an acute strain, um, I'm able to be there to watch it in real time. Right. And, th and this does a few things for me. A, I, I've already know what the, quote unquote training load of that athlete was what they've done months prior to this what they're planning to do for that cycle because i'm a part of that process so i ultimately know kind of the readiness on any given day of kind of where someone's at um, in addition to that i do think that you know being able to watch the technical proficiency and mechanical efficiency of an athlete gives us an understanding of potentially where we need to start working with someone right so uh, i will say that all like <laughs> without fail mechanics 100% matter, right? So the way that someone's kinematic expression is in the in, in in track and field is a very good measure of, you know, the reasons. And I'm not saying there's just one reason per se, but at least of the determinants of why something occurs. And that's something we may not actually find uh, within the clinical setting. And it's not to say that you can't, you know, from your history taking, kind of get an understanding. Any, anyone can go back and look at a program, right? You can see it on a piece of paper what someone's done. Um, I can look at a film and, and see, oh, yeah, okay, these were kind of coming out of position. But where I think that the difference is, is that being embedded into this process, 
you have just so much more context that you'll never be able to get from a clinical interaction with someone, right? When you're involved in that person's life um, and from every aspect of it, you just have a different relationship. And ultimately, you know, they'll say that from a clinical setting, look, you could do the best work possible. Someone might just not like the sound of your voice. And so they're not going to have a good uh, outcome with you versus somebody else who we think is totally inept the person, you know, has a great relationship with. And so they just totally buy into the process. And so, um, you know, that, that's a part of the biopsychosocial model that maybe people don't think about with performance therapy, but it's definitely there. Right? We, we develop this communication and this rapport and this trust with an athlete. So they're automatically buying into whatever you kind of want to do. So on those two aspects, just alone on the surface, not buying into, I shouldn't say not buying into, but respecting the whole versus being reduced and then being able to, you know, form a meaningful relationship with an athlete, uh, those two things uh, are in and of itself, I think, uh, super important, right? Um, so then, okay, what then? What does that look like from an actual rehab standpoint? Then, well, I would also say that performance therapy uh, respects the complexity of the athlete, and we had talked about this before, right? So you can sit there and focus on I need to get this tissue to be you know, strong. I'm going to use strength as a measurement. Uh, Jerry Ramanjita and I have had these conversations before, and I'm, I'm going to say it, but just obviously we, we do care about the local tissue level, but at the same time, I could care less, right? Like a hamstring tear is a tear is a tear. Um, and I know that's probably going to sound really bad when you look at it from a research standpoint, but I, you know, I'll back up my statement a little bit there prognostic factors of whether, you know, it's a tear in the free tendon, whether it's a tear in the, um, uh, muscle tendinous junction, all these things really don't have as much effect on prognosis as we think, other than if you've always kind of been the person that, oh, my grade two takes 30 days, then all grade twos will take 30 days for you. And what we want to shift away from is this idea of a timeline base. And I think a lot of you know practitioners are, are doing this, so this shouldn't be necessarily new for anyone, but we want to shift away from just solely respecting timelines to really getting as criteria-based as we can. And to get criteria-based, you have to understand the complex nature of what an athlete does. And so for me, obviously the first few days will be very clinical in nature. Like the person may not even be doing anything. We might just have you in a cold water immersion for three to four days just to stop the bleeding. So yes, we're respecting what happens from a histological standpoint. But at that stage, we're also starting to introduce low-level movement. Right, because we understand that you you will need to switch. We'll need to get to a point where we're actually doing some type of movement, and we have to be cognizant of the fact that the somatosensory cortex needs to have a certain amount of stimulus to keep sharp before it starts to get to a point where there's cortical smudging, as I'll call. So losing your ability to execute those fine motor skills, which you've you know, come up to a point to be able to do. Now, to take it a step further, um, if we start to really dive into the world of ecological dynamics and ecological psychology, um, without boring everyone to death, ultimately what if affects your, um, your action or what you do is your perception of the environment. I'm going to give everyone an example of this just to kind of you know, make you understand where I'm coming from. But imagine, if you will, if I put a, a piece of two by four, right, so just a, a beam, across two really big buildings, let's say we're 50 stories up in the air, and I stick this two by four across two buildings, and I ask you to walk across it, like walk across this plank, 
how many of you would feel comfortable doing that with no safety equipment? And I, unless you're crazy, you probably wouldn't do it, right? Because if you fall, that's it. However, if I take that exact same two by four, everything's exactly the same. And I put that on the ground in front of you and ask you to just walk across it like you're walking across a balance beam. People would feel comfortable doing that, right? They'd be, yeah, no, not a problem because there's a safety net. Just like literally four inches off the ground. We're good. So what changed in that, in that in those two scenarios? The plank was exactly the same. The only thing that was different was the environment in which you were in, right? The environment gave you the context of whether or not you're going to walk or, or you're not. So your environment is ultimately driving action or your perception of the environment is driving action. So let's take this back for a second, put them back into a rehab setting. Do we really think that doing a whatever hamstring exercise you want to do in the weight room is going to make someone better at their skill? Because is the weight room the environment in which these athletes perform? No, it's not, right? And so what we try to do is be as representative. And representative is just a big fancy word I like to use for being specific with how we're going to return someone back to their competition. And so we need to be doing things that are at least representative of sprinting in our hamstring rehab. Uh, Dan Paff has made the dribble series, which uh, if for those of you who are listening to this, if you're not familiar with it, you can go onto onto uh, our YouTube page and um, one of our, our coaches, Chidi, has a really good kind of uh, synopsis of what the dribble series is. But really, uh, it's just a, a truncated version of sprinting, which is very small ranges of motion. Uh, we can increase or decrease the range of motion. And we can increase or decrease the cadence, and we can increase or decrease the intensity. So I can go through a walking, um, you know, a dribble, which will really look like a very small attenuated sprint cycle, but walking. And then I can make it so that they're actually going through a, a dynamic version of that, right? So that is just one way in which we'll use representative design into kind of what we do from a, a therapeutic standpoint. Now, th- there's lots of other ways of obviously getting there, right? But um, that that's just one of them. The other thing that we like to do is I don't want someone to just stay um, in the clinical setting. I think we need to be integrative in what we do at practice as well. So as we're identifying our, our key steps to move from, you know, uh, the way that I would kind of break this down is from day one of an injury, our first goal is to get you to return to participation. And, and participation really is, can when can I get you walking, dribbling uh, safely? Once we kind of return to participation, we need to return to practice. And once we get to practice, what can we do from a plan B setting that, again, mimics what we think you'd be doing um, at this part of the cycle of your training, um, but also respects the nature kind of of the injury, right? Um, and then really kind of what we move on from there is uh, anything that we can do to make um, the athlete optimally perform. And that could be from different therapeutic interventions to you know things that we want to kind of do in the weight room, uh, if you will. But that, again, might have been a really long-winded answer as to just the, the differences that do exist between performance therapy and, and the typical clinical um, um, experience that you would have. Now, there's one thing I do want to make note of. You notice how I didn't say there's a specific soft tissue technique, right? I didn't say that. And no, the reason didn't. I didn't say that, yeah, the reason I didn't say that is because performance therapy, and, and again, Jeff Kubos, Dr. Jeff Kubos said this best when he took the course. Our course won't teach you how to think. It's just going to make you realize how you think about problems. And ultimately, I don't really care what you do from a manual perspective. You know, we don't fly anyone's flag in our sand because they're all good. They all work. It's just how you apply it. That's what matters the most. 
And so if you like soft tissue therapy X and I like soft tissue therapy B, it doesn't matter. Like as long as you're able to appropriately think about how you're going to apply these and ultimately respect the complexity of an athlete, you'll be good. Where I see people having issues is that they actually don't know how to structure training. They don't know how to, to think about problems and work their way through problems and understand that ultimately the best way to solve a problem is to actually create multiple problems for yourself, right? It's like ask a question and keep asking 10 questions about that question. Eventually, you'll get to the point where you answer your original question and you're just diving deeper into, into what you have. Hmm. And I think a lot of the time patients can almost, without meaning to, almost tell you how to treat them. If you really yeah, dig into their yeah. subjective enough, they'll they'll tell you how they want to be fixed and how they'll probably respond best to anything you could uh, implement. Yeah, and that 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 that's I mean that's another key, right? With with what we do, we really believe in therapy being this active process, not just a purely passive. And what I mean by that is you don't just get to jump on the table with me and expect me to do a bunch of work while you're sitting on your cell phone. Like I need to hear you. I need to be. No one knows your body better than the athlete themselves, right? Um, and so it, it, there's an education process that, that goes on with what we do as well. Um, and so it makes my job ultimately so much more easier because, you know, at this point, the athletes really are kind of tuned in to, to know the demands that are being placed on them and how they kind of react. And they kind of know what works well and what, you know, doesn't work well. And like we said before, you can't just expect to do the same treatment for everyone and get the same response. It just doesn't work that way. Um, you know, one of the things I've always loved about the the altest content that up till now i've consumed is it always pulls in really uh fascinating kind of philosophy and examples and it converts it into a usable language like you said that kind of uh allows us to identify how we think um and hopefully be more effective practically but you know with this in mind where do you personally turn to uh guide guide your learning and how do you kind of strategize your own personal professional development because i think um the stuff the stuff that you guys borrow from other walks of life and other industries is always really interesting so i'm always curious yeah. as to kind of like what inspires this process um so <laughs> without being like too egotistical uh my goal has always been to be the best in the history of ever so i, I really am striving to be the best therapist that i possibly can on on every day uh, and I think the, the key word to highlight there is that it's a process. It's not just something you can do once and you're going to get there, right? You, you constantly have to be kind of chipping away. I mean, the Japanese word Kaizen is really a, a philosophy that, you know, we've kind of adapted at Altus as well. So this idea of the continual improvement, right? Using every day as an opportunity to get better at what we do. Uh, ultimately, I think that <laughs> this, this is going to sound weird as well, but we probably have more failures on, on any given day. Uh, throughout the year than we do successes there's not like these crazy breakthroughs that happen every day but it's almost because of those quote-unquote failures or how we view them as failures that keeps us staying hungry and staying on that edge of okay what can i do differently to get to where i need to be at or to help this person get to where they need to be at um, and so that has been instilled in our culture right um, the other thing that was very fortunate about this is altas has always been a very open learning environment um, there are no secrets of what we do. And if you come visit us, you'll probably think that, man, a lot of this stuff is just really basic. And you're right, it is. It's super basic. But it's the application. It's our understanding of how things work that's where the, you know, the real, I guess, um, key to what we do kind of lies. Um, because of where the coaching staff had come from, uh, especially with Kevin Tyler, when they're in the UK, they heavily, heavily invested into coaching education and career development. 
they saw that as uh, a necessity, right? Whereas before people may not have paid that much attention to it. That, um, that concept has not changed since they've got to Altus. So Altus has always been about making sure our coaches, all of our coaches are constantly improving in what they do. Um, we're very fortunate to run these apprentice coaching programs, uh, you know, during the season is usually about every, you know, every month or every six weeks. Um, and in those we have guest speakers who will come in. So I'm fortunate that I get this embedded learning because I get to learn from people who are not necessarily track and field folks, right? We get to learn from people from the outside, take what we can and apply it to what we do. Um, in addition to that, again, it's, it's also just being like, I'm very fortunate to be probably the dumbest guy at Altus. So, um, I get to bug really smart people, uh, and I get to, uh, <laughs> this is, uh, the, our, our strength and power coach, Jason Hetler, we're, we're very good friends. Um, and we've adopted a strategy called wolfing. I'm not sure if the audience understands what wolfing is, but, um, here, here's another side story for you. But if you look at the way that, you know, we've kind of evolved over time, uh, we went from this hunter gatherer population to. I mean, look at where we are now. We go to a grocery store to get food, right? So I still think that there is this innate yearning to have a bit of conflict in your life. And the way that you can do this is by arguing <laughs> with your coworkers about things and just seeing where stuff falls out. So me, me and him will go back and forth on a lot of things. Um, and it gets quite heated. But those have also been probably some of the most beneficial things for me. And I'm not saying that's for everybody. Uh, even for him to learn, right? So, and what I mean by arguing is I'll show up one day and say, hey, Jason, the sky's not blue, it's pink. And like that That's a level of argument. We'll actually take um, uh, the position of something we don't even believe in just to argue with the other person to kind of see where they're at and see where we can kind of come around with things. So um, again, that there's some in, embedded um, back and forth that we'll have uh, with uh, with the crew and stuff. again if you ever come visit us no we're not yelling and fighting at each other it's just a part of the process <laughs> that we think there there's the uh, the the uh, uh the intel on on altus coaching staff and how we kind of how we come through but it, it's honestly it's been the environment uh, the culture that these coaches have instilled that that um you know we put a high priority on learning as, as much as we can and applying that knowledge I've got to say, mate, people won't be able to tell because it's an audio episode, but I've just been sat here nodding the whole time you've been speaking. So <laughs> I could I could keep bugging you with questions for hours, but um we're probably on the clock. But Jess, yeah. thanks so much for coming on, mate. It's been a it's been an absolute pleasure to to hear you speaking and and to have the selfish opportunity to ask the questions that I want to you. Absolutely, man. Again, I appreciate you taking the time to to want to even listen to what I have to say. Um, to everyone else that's listening, if you ever want to come visit, don't be shy. Um, get in contact with us. We're more than happy to chalk a uh, shop. If, you know, once you know, things have uh, <laughs> come down a little bit as far as what's going on in the world, uh, more than happy uh, for folks to come and visit us or, or just even reach out to us. Uh, reach out to me on, on social media and more than happy to have a conversation for sure. That's really kind. No, thanks, mate. Yep. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks. I'd like to thank Dr. Jazz for coming on. I genuinely could have kept asking him questions and speaking to him for hours. But if you enjoyed this episode, then you should probably and hopefully also enjoy our next guest of the podcast, Gordon Bosworth, a UK-based sports physiotherapist. Gordon was actually a great mentor of mine when I was working in the UK as a physio in sport before moving out to the States. He will be a great episode to follow Dr. Jazz as Gordon was one of the course contributors for the Altis Performance Therapy course and he's part of the extended Altis family. 
Don't forget to subscribe to the show. It makes a massive difference on our end if you do. And never hesitate to interact with us on social media, either on our Instagram page, Inform Performance, or on our Twitter page, at InformPod. Thanks for listening to the Inform Performance Podcast. Thank you.